I mainly feel like I encounter God when I observe human beings advocating for each other and taking care of each other, like being good stewards of our temporal resources um, in a godly way. I'm Sarah New, I'm the host, and I interview activists, thinkers, and just really interesting people um, who are religious in our faith and to talk about their politics, what they do in the world, what they believe. And um, just as a bit of context, this podcast is actually hosted by the Religious Socialism Working Group, which is part of the Democratic Socialists of America. Apologies for not getting an episode up earlier. We've, Devin and I, my producer and I, have been very swamped. Uh, but this episode is like definitely worth it, and we'll put the full audio on Patreon. So that way people who really want more, you can definitely listen to more. We talked for a good two hours. This is cut down significantly. The person I'm about to introduce you to, her name is Julian Baker. She is a singer-songwriter, guitarist from Memphis, Tennessee. She's actually quite young. You sometimes forget it. She's very mature in her response. She's about 22. Um, and she has basically blown up in the past two years. She's on Colbert. She's been written up in The New Yorker, and PR, New York Times, what have you. Um, my ex-roommate, Carolyn, introduced me to her. She took me to our concert, and I was just blown away by kind of this confessional, intimate space she was creating amongst like a bunch of like jaded, uh, cynical New Yorkers. So, you know, it, it sort of felt like I was in a kind of uh, church service-esque, but with just like one person. And we're all just kind of listening in. And her songs are, while the lyrics in her songs are fairly religious, but I, and most of the time she gets interviewed about her music. But this time around, I wanted to talk to her about her politics. So we have a mutual friend in common, Sue and Shaw. We're all part of kind of queer Christian circles. And Sue is also a singer, songwriter, actually has a, a new album. Oh, it just came out, I think, today. Today as in June 22nd. Reclaimed Hymns, I believe it's what's called, A Liturgy for the Perseverance of Saints. In any case, so I told me, hey, you know, Jalen's kind of a socialist, right? And I was like, oh, no way. Let's, uh, let's talk. <laughs> you know, whenever you meet a fellow queer Christian socialist, it's always like a good conversation. So we connected over Skype a while ago, so this interview is maybe a little bit dated, and we just kind of dove more into our politics, how she relates to them, how it plays out in the world. Uh, we talk a little bit about her music towards the end. If you're a fan of her, obviously this is like uh, a gem in my, in my opinion. But if not, I think you still find the interview very interesting. So without further ado. Hi, Julian Baker. Thank you. Welcome for coming on the Religious Socialism Podcast. Let's first talk about why it is that you don't have an iPhone and thus okay. it's hard to record this actual conversation. 
Okay, okay. Um, so, I, for a long time, like, wouldn't use any Apple products, and I didn't like it. It just made me feel slimy, because anytime there's, like, a, a monopolizing, like, ubiquitous force, I'm sus. <laughs> but I knew, like, I read years and years ago the story about the Foxconn plants mm-hmm. in Asia and the workers' unfair rights. But so, and then that, like, sparked this Apple technology boycott. But then what happened, like, what happens with pretty much all powerful companies is that Foxconn horizontally and, I guess, vertically integrated and so for a long time I had a Samsung and then mm. Foxconn bought Samsung. And so yeah. then I was like, well, what's the last company that doesn't like source their materials and production so unethically? And eventually it just got bought by everything. <laughs> so it's like I w- I'll go to the grocery store and I'll be like, oh, I don't want to buy something that's like a Nestle product. But then it's owned or distributed by an arm of something equally as I guess evil is a very dramatic term but like it's it's all touching right so like I know that I guess that's a conversation of measurable actual good and like perceived good like is it doing any actual good whether I because the thing that blew my mind when I three years ago I'd be like oh I don't use iPhones and I was like super proud of myself right all the activists that I know have iPhones and like don't think twice about it yeah because they're they're like actively participating in social organizing using an iPhone so it's almost like what's the cost benefit like I don't know. How long but. does it take for you to make purchasing decisions? I'm envisioning you spending like two hours in a grocery store figuring out which potato to buy. Literally. Literally. <laughs> I, um, like, uh, my partner and I went to the grocery store yesterday. And so, same thing with Walmart. Let me just preface this by saying, like, this story is supposed to make me look like a fool and kind of um, exhibit the the foolishness of my intense beliefs, not make yes, you know, yes, yes. me out to be like, okay, so like there are these homeless people outside of Walmart, and I was like so I could either buy those homeless people rain jackets at Walmart knowing that the rain jackets were produced in Bangladesh and that's why they can come into my possession at such a low cost or I can say I don't choose to support Walmart as you know one of the top three biggest players in global capitalism mm-hmm. and then those homeless people go without a raincoat yeah so like when my partner and I go to the grocery store and I stand there at the water bottle aisle and I'm like none of these are okay she's just like okay well just choose one that's the least not okay mm-hmm. so that we can get our water bottles Mm -hmm. and like she's really patient with me Mm -hmm. but I get it like I used to straight up just cry I'd like go grocery (laughs) shopping and cry (laughs) it just sucks I mean that sounds really dramatic no but but I actually know people like you I I don't have the same moral sensitivities (laughs) but no you're not you're not alone there are a lot of people crying grocery stores 
over what what to buy. Yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting to think about like what is the ethical framework we use to kind of make our decisions. And I think particularly if you come from more sort of socialist or like more radical politics, it's easy to disassociate from systems because the whole thing is too corrupt and whatnot. But then in the short term, there are very real problems and needs that need to be met. And I think, at least for me, that's where my faith comes in a little bit because it has such particular attention to the person and the personhood and the dignity in each person. And for me, at least, that's how I try to integrate this, like, systems, you know, political analysis and, like, the interaction, the very concrete interaction between a person and another person. For you, at least, we've kind of dived right into it, I suppose, but how, how do your faith and politics come together? So I think that, like, my faith in politics more and more, I see my faith played out as being deeply, deeply political. And, like, that's the realm in which I observe acts of, I don't want to say, like, godliness. Maybe that's not the term. But so to me, I have pulled a lot away from like abstract philosophical theology and I am way way more interested in practical applied theology and to me that's inherently political Hmm. like when we live in a political state that's so divisive and that occasions so much hatred and things that are directly opposed to like what the kingdom of God would look like for instance like the poverty epidemic I think dealing with those issues is like an intense act of worship and doing humanitarian and social organizing is a, an act of establishing a religious community and all that's necessary to like really link those two things in people's minds is for us to start labeling it as such. Because I also have a lot of friends from that world who are, not religious at all. Mm -hmm. Like, they would not really draw a parallel between a humanitarian agenda and a religious call to treat every human being because they're supposed to be part of a whole body, a whole family of humans in a kind and compassionate way. But then on the flip side of that, there are people within religious communities who participate in religious ceremonies and folkways and stuff, but then never take it the next step to, like, that demands a response from me, Yeah, you know? When I go and hear a sermon about it, it demands that, like, that starts shaping how I think about human beings and what rights they deserve. But so, yeah, it's interesting that, like, I mainly feel like I encounter God when I observe human beings advocating for each other and taking care of each other, like being good stewards of our temporal resources um, in a godly way. What would you say the 
left at large can take and borrow from religion? Or is it really, you see, it's the other way around, which is religious communities has, have a lot to learn from social justice organizers or leftist politics or what have you? Mm. That's like an interesting dynamic to think about because I think it's almost like in an ideal world where the gospel gets played out how I think it's evident that it should be. I would think that social justice movements would have a lot to learn from the structure of egalitarian wealth distribution and like the worth and importance and and value of each individual within a greater body. I think social justice movements would theoretically have a lot to learn from the gospel if it weren't so often laid out in a way that did not model that at all. Yeah. And that sounds very much like I'm indicting mainstream religion and I Which am. Which is it's okay no, if you are. <laughs> no, because I always, because I, you know, take very literally the things that are said within the gospel, then I also know that I really have no position to criticize other people before I try to understand them. And for a long time, the thing that I would say is like, well, you know, to each their own. Like, what's really harmful about the churches with, like, plasma screens and Humvees and an entire Starbucks inside of the actual church building? Maybe that's how some people encounter God. But the more and more that I am alive in just on this crazy earth, the more I think it's important that we say that some things are not okay. Because I don't think that suffering earns you wisdom or enlightenment. And I don't think that everybody should wear a hair shirt or like a sackcloth in order to be closer to God. Mm -hmm. Like that's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying that it is necessary that we challenge ourselves in generosity and discomfort and I don't think that God exists to be a thing that serves the comfort of a person accustomed to like an upper middle class capitalist lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that is something that's necessary to change. Like you cannot just walk through life. It's a gospel what, that what, what? you to care for others and you can't walk through life not caring what others experience. Like... What specific verses sort of stick in your head as these kind of goads to action? Or well, I think a lot about like Acts and like how the early church is described as having all things in common and like even the language of Paul. And I mean, if we had like three hours, I would go off into this whole tangent about Paul and like. I'm a big Paul fan, but he also says some stuff that I think is very 
specific to its historical moment that gets taken out of context. Specifically, I, you know, like, as a queer individual, I think his letters to Rome yeah. and the Romans. So, but um, I think the way that Paul talks about the corporal, like, physical world as being transient and almost, like, secondary to the spiritual world is something that I always took a lot of comfort in, like, knowing that if I don't have to find comfort and security in wealth or, like, my participation in a system that elevates wealth as synonymous with security, then I am free to reallocate my resources to others without fear that they'll run out because I believe that my personal comfort is not as important as everyone's comfort, you know? And I feel like the thing that Christ talks about in the Gospels and parables about the man who buries his goods in a field and the man who builds all these storehouses. Like, there's this recurring theme of people who are preoccupied with wealth and cannot let it go. Like, that guy who says, like, I've done everything, I've learned everything, now what would you ask of me? And God is like, give away everything you have and Mm -hmm. come with me. And then he can't do it because that wealth is so important to him. And I'm not saying that, like, I'm not saying money's evil by itself. I'm just saying that, like, we live in a capitalist society, and a capitalist society makes power and financial security and cash all one thing. And then we feel like to be happy, we have to have those. It's interesting to me, though, what you're saying about, like, um, the tension between the physical and spiritual realm, because oftentimes that language becomes rationalized or deployed in the in the cause of, well, we'll always have the poor among you, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, we need to focus on spiritual and more higher things, and the physical things, yes, poverty matters, but, I don't know, if you grew up evangelical, then it's like, let's just save some souls or something like that. <laughs> but you, you've sort of, like, reoriented that for yourself to say, well, actually... Yes, in a certain way, wealth doesn't matter. And that actually frees me to give wealth and to share wealth. Um, yeah, I suppose there's a difference between talking about wealth and then having your material needs met, which are, I think, two different things. Um, oh, yeah. 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 I, I wonder, I'm curious for you to talk a little bit more autobiographically. I mean, I know most of the interviews you do are like music based interviews I like no shit about music like I mean I listen I listen to music <laughs> but un- unfortunately I'm not going to be able to provide that but you know you talk about your faith obviously in a lot of these interviews but I'm curious if you could dive a little bit more into that like what was the theology or type of worship or songs you listened to growing up in the church from what I understand you grew up in evangelical to the context oh, man. so it was like a bit of an interesting meandering thing for me like I grew up in Memphis going to a church that was very um formal and it was a very like tie pantyhose dresses Mm. 
on Sunday mornings type of church. And that was when I was very young. And then when my parents separated and we stopped going to church and I became an adolescent who had a lot of angst and like thought, so I thought like more intelligence than anybody else, you know, I was like kind of arrogant and I was like, well, if there's God, why do bad things happen? And Boom. of course, became, <laughs> first person yeah, to ever so, think that. <laughs> <laughs> like every 13 year old says. And so, well, I started hanging out with some friends that would go to the Sunday night thing that I thought was so lame. And because praise and worship music from the early 2000s is so lame. Like, what music were you guys listening to? <laughs> oh my god, dude. Like, do you remember that David Crowder song? This song actually rips. It sounds like a Hawk Nelson song. But that, uh, <laughs> There Is No One Like You, that's like a uh, punk yeah. rock yeah, song. Yeah, yeah, I think I know it. Yeah, yeah. It's Simple Plan Does Worship. But anyway. So that, and then like, I also started going to hardcore shows at the Skate Park of Memphis. But when I was a kid and going to these hardcore shows, the type of hardcore that was popular in the South is much different than what you get in the Northeast. When I was a kid going to shows, the Southern metalcore was infused with, it was like Christian metalcore. So you have your like Under Oath and your for today and you're like mailing and the sons of disaster like semi christian lyrics but Mm -hmm. a little bit heavier and edgier and then there's bands like colorful and manchester orchestra who are from mississippi and atlanta who have sort of religious influences but they talk about it in like an edgy way Mm -hmm. and and i think that it's just such a part of the culture in the south that is even if you grow up as a kid in like the punk community or the hardcore community that comes out in your music whether it's good or bad and Mm -hmm. then every it was so popular in tennessee florida georgia because everyone identified with that. So then the music I'm listening to, like my favorite band became Me Without You. And Me Without You, they're from Philly, but they are like, it's some crazy stuff going on in there. Like the way that he uses biblical imagery is very much old school, Hmm. theological, community-based. And then all of their shows would be like, everyone bring their own instrument like this is a group thing and like this Mm. microphone's her microphone so like in a way the first interaction that I had with the gospel as I now interpret it as being community oriented and egalitarian was modeled in the way hardcore music is because it's not like a performer and an audience it's like kids are crowd surfing up to the front the vocalist is climbing down into the mosh pit. Like, it's all one thing where everybody is accepted. And the outcasts and, like, social, non-normal people are accepted at the Under Oath show or mm. whatever. So I liked that music. And then my Christian friends that were, like, a little bit edgier liked that music. And they invited me to come to this youth group thing. And then I went and straight up was so mean to the youth group leader. I was like, well, if God existed, then explain this. And she straight up looked at me in the face and was like, I don't know. 
but I'll try to figure it out for you by next week. And no one had ever just admitted that they didn't know to me. And I thought, wow, that's sweet. So then they didn't press the issue anymore, but they would be like, hey, instead of hanging out with your shitty white trash friends that are trying to make you smoke pot, why don't you come over and we'll make you spaghetti? And they're just like these late 20-something people and, like, would never say, like, hey, by the way, you should believe in God. Or, like... Hey, by the way, you need to accept Christ as your personal savior right now. They were just nice to me. And they would drive out to the middle of nowhere when I didn't have a ride. And I never explained to them why I needed a ride or why I was in this crazy part of town. They just came and got me and took care of my material needs. And then I was like, why are you guys so nice to me? And they were just like, because that's what you do if you love God. You love other people, too. Hmm. And I was just like, wow, that's amazing. (laughs) Like, to think of that as being how religion should work, that was never how I thought about religion before. It was just a very punitive thing. Yeah. So, I'm curious, was the youth group, was it tied to a church or was it like a youth ministry organization type thing? It was. It was tied to this much larger church, which I never went to because it was in the morning. And then that church, like, dissolved because of, like, a huge financial dispute. And then one of the youth leaders there named John Nix made a smaller church called Veritas in Memphis. And we got this restaurant to let us use their, like, event room in the morning Mm. when they was like getting everything prepared for noon when they opened or whatever and uh it was just like 50 people and it was really cool and everybody was really nice to each other and like me and my dad used to go I met a lot of my friends that I still talk to like through there and then when I moved away it had become like a strip mall church and it was still only like a couple hundred people but it was just very focused on like establishing communities and then like when someone needed something trying to create a tight-knit group of people to where we didn't have to have like a church-wide drive like this person is in need of something for a medical bill or like needs diapers it's just like people took care of each other just do it yeah And it wasn't, like, compulsory or whatever. But um, then when I moved away, I, like, had trouble finding another church community to be a part of, in college especially, because I felt like I had gotten spoiled for for church being like that. Mm -hmm. And then I started going to this church called Holy Cross Episcopal, which was crazy because for so long I went to rock church, you know, with, like, the flashing lights and, like, I played in the praise band and did, like, guitar solos and stuff. And Mm -hmm. Episcopal Church is just straight up, you sing out of a hymnal. Mm -hmm. And that's it. But it's, like, my vicar was also a woman named Carolyn who, like, used to do roller derby and, like, did this master's thesis on faith communities in, like, Muslim female contexts and how that's analogous to the female role in Christian communities. And, like, she's super cool. She got me to 
not believe in total depravity of man <laughs> by just saying, do you think God made human beings to be pieces of shit? And yep. I was like, I can't believe a pastor just swore at me. <laughs> also, no, I don't think that a perfect God would do that. I guess you're right. But yeah, so it's been like a real weird journey for me. <laughs> like, like we used to play at a weird mega church and then slowly scaled it all the way down to an Episcopal church in Murfreesboro with like 70 people. Yeah, no, it's interesting to me the ways in which I guess I've been doing like exploring forms of like Buddhism or like meditation, and the very mm. the premise in, in the, that religion, from what I understand at least, if it, it you know it's qualified religion, but is that everyone is capable of enlightenment, and mm. that is the basis of empathy, and, and so even if someone does hurt you or harm you, the question is okay, how do I not respond punitively? but respond towards that person's potential. And in some ways, the behavior kind of might be the same, regardless of the premise you start out with, whether it's humans are depraved and we're all offered mercy, or humans are capable of enlightenment and we should hope towards that. And like, I think the behavior is the same. But I was just kind of curious like where you were kind of intellectually or theologically, or even how you relate to yourself. Like Since the minister has said that, how have you looked at the divine differently or looked at yourself differently? I think it has been easier to mitigate a lot of the anxiety that I experienced. For a long time, I think just having these thoughts bounce around in my brain that are cyclical and kind of all center around failure and the inevitability of failure kind of permeated all my other thought patterns. And mm. it creates a futility, right? Because right. if you believe that no matter how much good you do, you'll never be good, then what is the point of trying to do good instead of just allow yourself to surrender to hopelessness, right? I guess you could go on saying like, well, because I love God or because I love other people. But then eventually I think subconsciously or unconsciously, like the motivation will run out and you will end up feeling futile and hopeless. Yep. Mm -hmm. And so that, I guess, starts off in the micro realm with just Julian Baker working out her own salvation. But then translate that feeling to any social activism movement. If I believe that the evil of the world is so oppressive and so powerful and that these structures are cemented in place and there's no way to imbue any of my actions with good, then what is the point of even trying? Why don't I just go ahead and yep. go to Walmart and not think twice about it? Yep. Or like, we'll just wait till the savior returns and he'll make everything right. And we get off, <laughs> get off the hook in some ways. Oh my gosh. So that whole thing that you just, I think maybe signaled a little bit, the, uh, the Christian ostrich, man. The people who you talk to 
you know, a month before the election and say, don't you think it's weird how both of these people seem to be extremely corrupt and, like, motivated by financial ends? And they're like, well, good thing God is sovereign. And I'm like, that doesn't mean you don't have to do anything. What do you mean? So crazy. Yep. Yes. That's infuriating. But, yeah, like, I don't know. I think having a view of God as merciful instead of creating this, like, very impossible standard is something that enables you, like, it equips you to give mercy to other people. However, I think that there is a danger in a highly individualized gospel. I think sometimes we can focus so much on the person and God, and that we forget that we're part of an enormous body that demands our response to God as we see them just walking around. Like, Christ straight up says, like, whenever you've clothed one of your brothers, you've clothed or fed me. That, to me, is one of the most explicit examples of if Christ is in all persons— then we're supposed to take care of all persons. We're not supposed to just say, like, I read my Bible, I say my prayer, so me and God are good, and I don't have to worry about anyone else. Mm-hmm. Like, the, the other thing I wanted to ask also was um, how, I, and I think you alluded to this, as a professional musician, you navigate operating in capitalism. You know, the choices that you make about music or shows or whatnot um it's a vague question i have some more specifics but if that's enough of a prompt for you go please go ahead no i mean it's something that especially so the manager that i work with like used to work at blood and ink records Mm -hmm. and now you know works with a different label um but so blood and ink is like a christian hardcore label Mm. and it's been he also comes out of hardcore was an atheist for a while, became a Christian, has that sort of familiarity with the egalitarian, like, progressive politics of old-school hardcore. But And then he also knows, like, where I would stand as a person who unites that with faith. Hmm. And so for he and I, like, when we met it was very challenging because I had grown up doing DIY touring and not really understanding like how things work in a capital like when this is my profession when I am paid real dollars and not like pizza and tips off the door to play shows um and so that was hard for me and I think one of the conversations that he and I had a lot initially was I was like, well, I don't need this. So should I just give it away or burn it? Or what do you think? It's just like monopoly money. And he was like, Oh my God, are you freaking kidding me? (laughs) Stop that. Like, which, and I don't say those things make myself 
seem like, in fact, it should probably make me seem like a little bit foolish because one of my favorite biblical stories is when I think it's Solomon builds the big cedar temple for God and like uses all of his kingly wealth to create this massive offering. And then God is like, I don't need that. That was a waste of time. Why did you do that? And Solomon is so upset. And it makes me feel like how maybe sometimes I would equate money with evil or generosity with piety when really what I could do is try to like operate in a fair and generous way and to make sure that like we have conversations all the time where I'm like how much are ticket prices because they shouldn't be crazy or how much is merch being sold for because it shouldn't be more than like x amount percent higher than what it costs us to make it because that's unfair and I don't think that just because you could sell it for x amount like you should like you should be fair and considerate of the people who are paying you to keep you alive like I put food in my mouth with that money but I also pay a crew and like for the longest time I didn't know how I felt about buying a hotel with money that I made off of the show because I thought I've never needed a hotel before there are people who don't get to buy a hotel in fact many of my friends who still tour are sleeping on people's floors and like how can I justify it for myself and then Sean my manager asked me like well do you think that your crew deserves a hotel and would you give them a hotel and I was like oh yeah absolutely 100% and he was like okay so then everybody's gonna get a hotel like I think that accumulating resources is just a challenge in how to like reallocate them generously and that's honestly like a task I'm perpetually aware of because when I get paid then after I pay everybody else there's the question of like well how much did I make and how much do I need and how much should I save how much does it make sense for me to give away and so then at the end of the year we have that conversation but also like this feels kind of slimy to discuss because I was for some reason always taught in this backwards way of like telling anybody about the generosity you're doing devalues it don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing sure sure so I feel weird but like I guess I try not to assign my security to a numerical value that way if ever something like arises where one of my friends needs something or they can't make a payment on something that I'm just like, it's okay. I got it. If that were to happen, I don't know. It's it's kind of a tricky subject to discuss and I hope I'm not being weird about it or like... No, I, I think in general, more people should talk about money and how we use it, spend it, consume it, how much we make. I think part of what, if we, even if something as simple as like salary and equity... Part of how that's perpetuated is lack of information as to how much my coworker gets paid versus how much I get paid. And I think in general, it's good that we break down that taboo of money. So I'm happy for you to talk about it. I think it fits in at least the politics I have. Yeah, and it's something I didn't think about, but that I have 
thought about before and forget because I exist within the cultural climate that I do is that like it seems to be a tool of hyper individualization and like sectarianism almost to like make it taboo to discuss how much you make because it discourages people from being transparent about the wealth they're accumulating or the wealth they're not accumulating. And then like, you don't ever discuss those things and no one knows, like the fact that I would feel weird talking about finances and yet still feel some deep drive to continue earning money is like bizarre and weird and something that I feel is particular to Western or just like United States culture specifically, you know? Yeah. I I would say among my Asian friends, we probably are more frank about money than I am with my white friends. But yeah, I mean, it's, it's partly family upbringing, but it's just money was something. I I think this is actually, I guess I should, maybe I should talk a bit about myself. Um, how I got involved with the DSA was primarily through volunteering for Bernie. And I know you did some shows for Bernie. I was doing some Googling. But how much has Julian talked about her politics? Not very much. Okay. But the one story he mentioned that was like, oh, I think I could, I think I really want to help him, was um, it was an interfaith gathering between, as a rabbi, I think Cornell West was there, Linda Sarsour was there. Um, at a like a UU church in Brooklyn, and he was telling the story about how for his birthday he wanted a leather jacket. Now the jackets and Bernie are kind of back into conversation, but back then when he was growing up, he wanted a leather jacket, and uh, his mother said, "Okay, we'll we'll try to make it happen." So the day of his birthday, they go to seven different stores to try to find the best price for the best jacket, and obviously Bernie and I grew up very differently. Whatnot, he is much older, he's a white man, grew up in Brooklyn, I, I grew up in a different country and then California, but um, I was like, wow, I identify and relate to that experience of stress and having to navigate all these options and yet since I wanted to provide for your family, your kids, and that was something that although my family, you know, I didn't grow up in a very Democrat or lefty family at all, um, my family is fairly conservative in many ways, but I was like, oh, this is one way in which I think there's a continuity between the politics, the anxieties and concerns of my parents coming to America and my, like, I don't know, white, educated socialist friends <laughs> is, is this the underlying thread of like, oh, I think I think I mean, that's why out of all things, in some ways, I've, I've sort of invested my chips here is I mean, I'm queer. I could do queer stuff. I could do like immigrant stuff, like, you know, racist stuff. And I do like I'm involved in various things. But I think I've really carved out this thing because for a variety of reasons, but one, it feels like a very deep thing and it feels very familial and personal in a way that uh, other things do, but this feels familiar in the way that other things less so. I'm curious, there's an interview you did in 2015 where you were talking, someone asked you about an election. You said something like, I'm going to quote you. Uh, sorry about this. <laughs> it was a written interview, so you had more control over what you said. You, you said, using our current political system to affect change is like trying to remove a screw with a hammer. Something that is broken cannot be fixed with a broken tool. 
and you sort of stopped yourself. You said, you know, I don't, have to, I don't want to get into a whole dissertation about politics. Well, I mean, it was a, kind of an interview more about music. But since it's not really a podcast about music per se, if you had more time and space, like, what would you have said? <laughs> I think what I didn't want to say right then, like pre-election, was that Donald Trump is a nightmare. But also... Like, so, Hillary Clinton would have been a female in office, that would have been cool. Would have been a Democrat, that would have been cool. That person is still super shady and has been funded by people who are huge movers and shakers of wealth and who participate in this political system where we have the practice of lobbyism like what the fact that that even still exists blows my mind you can pay someone to advocate your cause which means you can pay for your ideas to be heard and to be more important than people who can't pay that is classes that is buying the inch like how is that not a huge deal? It just keeps on happening. But so, like, of those two options, there was one obviously less horrid option. But that doesn't mean that, like, had Hillary Clinton been elected, it's still a disgustingly corrupt system. Everything about it is. I mean, and... I think that until that's why I wanted so badly for Bernie Sanders to win. I wanted for the way we go about electing and delegating positions and the way that we go about like passing laws and the way that citizens interact with legislation. I wanted that all to be different. And we're just like, that's not going to happen from people who are looking to preserve and consolidate their own power, which was both of the candidates in the election and pretty much every election since forever. So, like, it frustrates me, but, like, I just read two, three incredible books. One is Hope in the Dark by Rebecca Solnit, and the other is um, Freedom is a Constant Struggle by Angela Davis. And both of those people talk about not allowing the brokenness of the system to discourage a person from trying to work within it, you know? Like, because for a long time, you know, I even have friends that are like, you know, your vote doesn't matter. I'm not voting because voting is being complicit in an evil system. I think that's like cynical and lazy, but in a negative way, do semi-agree how many times have we elected people that suck that didn't even win the popular vote like there are things that are glaringly obvious to me that are very discouraging about the system but that's why like small government is very important to me or like Hmm. local communities are very important that's where I think the activism should begin is like the more focused, the more specific and the more localized you can get with an issue, the more you can start to like reproduce that instead of like trying to take on 
you know, to use a real old school lit term, like the behemoth, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, So I guess I'm curious, what sort of local issues have you dove into? So I think, and this is also another thing that like the past three years of my life pretty much have not been able to like do any meaningful work with inside my community, which makes me a hypocrite because when I'm gone for like, you know, playing shows on tour for like nine months out of the year, I stopped volunteering at, I used to volunteer at a place called Workers' Dignity, which is like a workers' advocacy group in Nashville. That makes it hard for me to like even discuss these things because I know that I'm virtually a part of no community at all because I have like an address where I live, but I'm like never there. And so I guess I could talk about being involved with the community all I want in interviews, but like There's, like, not a lot of application. No. In the, yeah. I mean, it's a, in some ways, it's a modern phenomenon that includes more people, more than just you. We, you know, my brother travels out of town Monday through Thursday um, for work. Um, there are people who move about mobile, and I think we just have to think, I think we have to rethink, like, what ethics looks like for our modern age to a certain extent. If it's not, it'll just have to look different. For each person, I think I probably subscribe more to the notion of like, yes, I think there's virtue in analyzing like the utilitarian impact of your ethics as well as like your own intention, which is like a more virtue ethicist ethicist approach. But I think it's also a question of to a certain extent calling. I don't know if that's something you think about a lot or is is a term you're I don't know is in part of your vocabulary. What are you called to do in this moment now in this season of your life? when I think about that I would obviously say touring and creating music and trying to construct a dialogue in which people feel comfortable discussing like the intersectionality of faith and queerness or mental health and create a safe space for that and it's been a lot of like like a humbling exercise to understand that as much as I wish that whatever gift or talent that I have to give to other people were like as observable as volunteering or building a house or working with a person on a legal case. Mm -hmm. I work in the much more imperceptible metric of art And that's, like, the most elusive thing ever, right? Like, I can never know what impact, if any, the art that I make has on other people. And so I'm, aside from if a person chooses to, like, tell me and divulge that part of their life, I'm left wondering, like, is this for me? Like, and having to go through the daily task of, like, re-prioritizing and, like, trying to reset the perspective of like is this about accruing like accolades and recognition or is this about other people and I think that's like sometimes like very paralyzing but even I think 
We both know Suman Shia, right? Yes. Okay. I love her so much. There was like um, a time when I was coming with her. I was going to meet her at an organizing meeting for a protest of the Fraternal Order of Police in Nashville. And I was only home for like three days. And this meeting was like right as I had rolled into town. And I like my family and everything started calling me like, you're going to miss all this thing. And you told us you would be here. And like, where are you? And so I straight up pulled into like a steak and shake parking lot and called Sue Ann. And I was like, yo, I don't know what to do. I feel like I'm not being a good person if I don't make it to this thing. And she was like, are you kidding me? Did you know that all work doesn't have to be visible and tangible and perceivably measured? Yes. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, you get that gets into a lot of questions about even something like domestic labor, right? And ways in which women have produced labor in the home that has not been recognized as labor formally in the economy and what have you. You know, while while the you know hotshot nonprofit executive is like running meetings, who's taking care of the children? Um, is that labor? You know, how is that labor counted? All that kind of stuff. So yeah, I definitely am very suspicious in some ways of quantifying impact because it seems to me that is a, a metric of modernity and not a metric of faith, or at least my faith. At the very least, Jesus spent time with like twelve people. He didn't go around yeah. like I don't know maximizing his time on Earth <laughs> by traveling to different regions. Um, so. Yeah. So, but I mean, what I really wanted to get at, though, was what you said, which is, um, you see, in some ways, my question was really about how your politics come through in the music that you do, um, or your sense of ethics. And from what I hear you say, you say that you kind of see it manifest in the sense that you create spaces for maybe more taboo topics or topics that are not really seen in conjunction together. You create spaces for those topics to kind of be birth and come forth in conversation with people. Am I, am I getting that right? Right. Yeah, exactly. I want, like, it's interesting that you say that about Jesus because yes, like, and also like Jesus didn't overthrow the Roman empire. Jesus just like ministered to people who were virtually ignored by yep. culture and showed those people love and created a safe space for those people. And by example, turned the paradigm of that society on its head by just the way that he behaved. Yep. Not by going straight up to the Roman Empire and saying, like, I'm creating a military coup and I'm in charge of this now. Yep. But also, like, yeah, and creating spaces, like, um, is important to me because I feel like I want to do something that really focuses on like the elasticity of the songs and the ability for other people to inhabit them and imbue the songs with their own story. Because if the songs are just a documentation of me and my feelings, then they're ultimately like self-serving and but also, like, I, I'm not really in a position, you know, we've talked about this earlier in the in the interview, but I'm, like, not really in a position where I can speak from personal experience about um, 
say, like, racial discrimination. Like, I'm queer, but I'm also uh, a white female who has had a lot of advantages. And so rather than try to, like, advocate for something that I don't understand, I think it is more effective and serves the like gives people agency more to just create a space in which they feel like their story is valid and valuable, you know, like, um, yeah, yeah. it's, it struck me. So I've been to a couple of your concerts, um, and it struck me that it was always a very odd phenomenon for you to sing about, kind of hating yourself at you know different degrees from different angles and then in in finding some sort of like hope or like possibility at the very end it kind of felt like a psalm almost like the way like some of the psalms that presumably David wrote and then it's like complete silence and then all of a sudden when you're done the song people just break out in applause (laughs) I guess the contrast between the lyrics of sort of like self uh I don't know what the right way to put it, but it's kind of a self-recrimination, recrimination, and then just like straight up applause at the very end um, was always like this funny uh, combination to me. But then I thought about it more and I was like, it kind of makes sense. Um, I mean, part of it is like we don't have any other way of expressing what we feel beyond laws or like shouting a few things. I was like, yes, people are applauding what she is singing because by singing it, she is destigmatizing the shame that is associated with those words and feelings. And what we are applauding is not so much the words themselves or the sentiment itself, but the fact that they are said publicly. Mm. Um, I don't know. It feels like a group confession. I would hope so. Yeah. And I feel a lot of reservations about some of the songs. Like there's this one song in particular, Good News, where the end is just me repeating that I ruin everything that I do. And what this, what having to perform that song like hundreds of times did for me was make me think, why did I write this? Do I really think that I ruin everything I do? Or did I feel at one time as though I was frustrated because I, I felt culpable? for things falling apart and I needed to express that emotion. And so I think that's why I go to the trouble of saying, like, I try not to, I think it might come off as uh, artificial, unfortunately, if I were to make a really effusive, like, hallmark card type of speech at every show. (laughs) And so I try to just concisely communicate that, like, being, like, refusing to be ashamed of our failures enables us to view them as something besides failure, and it enables us to view them as an opportunity to learn. Or, like, when we don't feel so much shame about the people that we are and the mistakes that we've made, that enables us to, like, see those parts of ourselves and then purpose them for something 
positive and something that could actually benefit us and others. And, mm-hmm. like, that's what I would hope to do yeah. with my music. And I think it doesn't, like, we can never get there, though, if we are not honest about the things that we feel. They're, like, very real and very valid emotions. Mm-hmm. Um but if we suppress them, then, like, they never get dealt with. If I have, like, a recurring issue in my life that I, like, never talk about, I never can solve it. Because, or maybe, like, and this is a, a something that I talked about, I feel like, a lot with the last record, is that maybe we need to stop talking in this, like, binary of normal and abnormal and like fixed and broken or like fixed and broken is something that I hear a lot in church language right yeah like and I hear that common inversion of like our brokenness is our strength like when we allow ourselves to be broken Mm -hmm. and to be flawed then we can see like how God can work through broken things but then like if god is working through them like are they so broken like can anything you know what i mean yeah 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 if if god created this thing that human beings are labeling or stigmatizing as broken or abnormal or wrong and yet god is achieving beautiful things through it is it then a failure is it then really so ugly no. So, but like we can't get to a place where we can love the things that we previously thought were ugly if we never are confident enough to like show them to others. Um So like that's what I hope. Yeah, yeah. And of course, I, and um as a side note, I might send you this article by a Professor Jared E. Kirk. He talks about what if we look at Jesus as a model of what humanity could be and how Jesus mm-hmm. is like a fulfillment of different people we see doing different things in the Old Testament. And he's just like evolutionary man 2.0 or something like that. So it might be a little uh-huh. heretical, but I, I like it a lot. He has a longer book on this very topic. But um, but I think shame really has to do with a lot of it. I mean, when we talk about when you... Um, Brian Stevenson talks about race in the United States, at least. He talks about how it is our collective inability to deal with the shame of our past and the sins of our past that gets in the way for our ability to make things right currently. Just why he's, you know, raising funds to build uh, museums and memorials to slavery so that we remember and we can talk about it and be explicit about it. So the dynamic, I think, that you're working out as an artist to the audience and something is a dynamic I think that everyone is trying to work out in different ways whether politically whether it's Brian Stevenson trying to get a funds for a slavery museum built or you talking about like mental health or some injury drugs what have you um or just like life um yeah I think if we can get past the shame um and acknowledge it without minimizing it at the same time think we can do a lot better as a country right yeah I find this a lot too with like my relatives that are Trump supporters like um sometimes like shame and responsibility are kind of tied in to each other and so like accepting 
a lack of some kind, a lack of knowledge or a lack of understanding or a lack of empathy or areas in which we could improve, like refusing to accept those because they're uncomfortable is a defense mechanism that I think is used by a lot of conservative America. And it's like partially what props up the whole like national myth of like bootstrap mentality is thinking that things are not our responsibility, not our fault, not our problem, like, but they are everyone's problems. So if we can be open about our own shortcomings, they like, I mean, because that's what I find a lot is like with people that I'll talk to about like, well, why, why aren't we responsible for each other? Or like, why don't you choose to like seek or care for or like continue this conversation like because it is uncomfortable because it makes us feel ugly inside like it just struck me what you were talking about like shame about our history what like, I think to accept the shame like shame or responsibility or privilege or anything like that incurs like a discomfort that is hard for those people to feel and so then when it goes unfelt it's like that's what allows people to justify discriminatory or like unjust political views yeah, and it kind of works in both directions. You either have, I think, progressives, white progressives who, who feel paralyzed by shame and feel like they can't do anything, you know, might as well not do anything. And then the other way where they feel so uncomfortable with it that they reject it altogether. Um, yeah. And, yeah, I think you can think about shame in so many different ways, politically, interpersonally, individually. I'm, I'm now very curious what your conversations with your Trump voting relatives are like over Thanksgiving. <laughs> oh, man. I, uh... For the first time, I had a, um, I had my partner like join me for oh, Thanksgiving. Congratulations, that's a big deal for the white trash bag. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, like, um, it's like an exercise in patience, right? So, like, but you know, I think it's important to engage those people because, in a fascinating but also sort of like mind-boggling way often I read a book about this oh my gosh somebody lent it to me oh my gosh I'll have to find I will find it and send it to you because it was about the whole idea of like post truth like as much as I loathe that that's a real piece of terminology we can use but like people seeing logic and then rejecting it right in front of your face like most of the time what I see underneath that is like a deep deep insecurity and fear hmm. and like when deep deep insecurity and fear mixed with like personal hurt is all mixed up in the psyche and then you challenge or threaten it it just becomes anger and that's what fuels all of the belief in absolute nonsense that's just clearly untrue is because finally when there's a receptacle for rage that feels justified 
it doesn't matter because there's so much like discomfort in the cognitive dissonance of accepting that you're wrong or accepting that even worse than just being wrong like you have the wrong information that you're wrong in like an ethical or uh, moral sense like that's so uncomfortable that you'd just rather keep on doing what you're doing yeah and that's crazy to me but oh yeah so i used to think that like we you can't just block all the Trump supporters on your Facebook. You can't just choose to not interact with those people because then no dialogue will ever be established. But more and more I'm seeing that sometimes it's harmful or just like unproductive because there reaches a point where it's like moot. Like you can present all of an argument that you want and like people are so committed to what they believe about reality that like their reality is like what they decide it is, you know, but that's, and that's infuriating. And that's, you know, I'm sure how many people's Thanksgivings went this year. Yeah. yeah. But, well, I'm curious why you refer to them as white trash as white trash. Like what do you mean oh, by that no. specifically? So like, I just said white trash bash to be funny because, yeah. like, I, like my entire family is white. They're, my mom's family is from East Tennessee, and they're just, like, grew up in very small towns in, like, the Appalachian region. And, like, my dad's family is just from, like, the middle of the Midwest, like, Nebraska, Kansas, like, yeah, just yeah. your run-of-the-mill. But so, like, my mom's family grew up very poor. Okay. And so I think that, um, and then my mom is like fine. She's just a normal average middle of the road lady. But like, uh, also my dad grew up very poor. Um, but so my childhood was fine and like I had enough. Um, but they didn't. And I think that sometimes I can see these things that I'm talking about where um, the resentment for a person's economic disparity and, and that anger being redirected by a person in power at immigrants, yeah. like scapegoating taking your jobs or whatever. Yeah. I see that straight up happening. Mm. And I'm just like, well, did you know that the statistics are that like <laughs> your wages have actually gone up? And of course, you know, yeah, no, no one in my family wants to hear that because they're poor yeah and of course they're like i was poor too and now i'm not poor and i'm like okay yeah well you also have a white face so that helped like yeah but i don't know it's hard to communicate that with somebody who feels like they have been wronged by the universe for sure and now deserve like a badge of honor um anyway yeah if you um if you're interested at all i i tended to you're familiar with showing up for racial justice it's, uh, it's called uh, Surge. Oh, yeah, Surge. Yeah. They, have, they have one of those in Nashville. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I yeah. went to one of their workshops, which is for calling in people, and specifically targeted to what's calling in, like, relatives or friends or colleagues, instead of calling out people. It was actually geared towards white people, but I went because I need those tools for my family and, like, people I know. Um, so, and most of it was, like, transferable to other spheres or things. Um, but... 
the most helpful thing that I'll share for this podcast and for you is that you want to think about people in terms of circles of concern. Uh, so, mm. so if the very core are people who are, I don't know, activists already, they're showing up to these meetings and they're kind of get it. And then the one layer out are people who are passively uh, uh, on, on board, but maybe aren't taking direct action. And then the level below that are people who are just kind of not doing anything, like not causing harm, but also not doing anything positive. And the level above that would be, um, level four would be passively opposing whatever you're doing. So they're not marching KKK rallies, but they're also like not making great comments about X, Y, and Z or voting in certain ways, what have you. And then everyone beyond that is sort of like, okay, you know, there's not much else you can do except call them out for when you see things that are bad or just protect yourself and like withdraw. But for everyone else, they, the workshop facilitators were like, instead of focusing how to get someone from a passive opponent all the way to like number one core like activist, focus them, focus on how to get them to just do less harm and move to the neutral zone. And then for someone's in neutral zone, focus on how to mobilize them and, you know, vice versa. So I, I realized, because I do the same thing, I'll, I'll name drop a lot of statistics of like, well, so-and-so research study shows X, Y, Z, because that worked for me, right? That's what moved me from like a three or a two to a one or whatever the stage is. But if I'm talking to someone who's at four, those things aren't going to like really move them. And what actually what we spent a lot of time on in the workshop is storytelling, um, it's like telling stories about our experiences or experiences of people of our friends or people we know and using that to like connect an empathetic human level and I was like oh this feel and it not only that we had to come up with a story in which we did something wrong or we got something wrong and made a mistake when it came to race and it, we had to practice confession in a certain way like I used to think this I used to believe this and then this happened um, and I was like oh these are it kind of felt like religious rituals in a certain way. You confess to establish common humanity, and from that, you're able to build a bond to then move forward into something, like, more positive. Yeah, absolutely. Like, and I think that's actually a really useful way to envision these tactics, because same with, like, the thing you said about the statistics is what got you. Like, Mm -hmm. once you hear a fact that's a fact, then you accept it. But trying to inhabit like the mindset of people and how they grew up and like all the things and like the cultural the like 40 plus years of cultural reinforcement that someone like my mother's side of the family might have had and then think like I can't undo this in one sitting and they, and so, and they have legitimate grievances keep- yeah yeah, they yeah. have their real grievances that need that I think what the workshop focused on was like emp- like validating the emotional need that was being expressed, even if you're not validating what is being expressed exactly. Right, exactly. And like I know like I've even had like conversations with people where I'm like if you're mad about not making money, like here's who you should be mad <laughs> yeah, at. Right, right. And I think but even those things, like it's difficult not to jump so many levels and like try to just practice listening when you feel like you don't know how much good that's going to do but like you're right and that's interesting the parallel that you drew to religious rituals of like admitting um or confessing to establish 
like a common ground with that person. So they feel like you're not judging them from a point of like pretension Mm -hmm. or superiority. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for making time. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. So that was Jalen Baker, uh, singer, songwriter, guitarist. I hope you enjoyed that conversation. We really covered a wide gamut of things and kind of got into some pretty deep stuff, I, I, I would like to say. Again, you're listening to Too Real Just Socialism, a podcast and production of the Democratic Socials of America. My name is Sarah New, and my producer is Devin Brisky. Tune in next month uh, for more conversations. Uh, in the meantime, we're on Facebook, Twitter, what have you. We're also on Patreon. Thank you for people who set up to support us. That's awesome. Um, and thank you so much for listening. Sweet.